And uh, the rest of you can open up your Bible apps or your Bibles to Colossians chapter 2. Um, Colossians 2, starting in verse 13-ish. Hey, uh, we've all been there, haven't we? We're, we're outside of a store downtown or at Walmart or Dillon's or somewhere, and, and we're outside and we hear this car blaring. And we think, who's the numbskull that set off his car alarm, right? And then you walk out and you notice your, your car is the one that's blinking like that. So you fish around for your, your key fob and your purse or in your pockets, you can turn it off and you walk Look around and think, uh, I'm the idiot, all right? Well, we disarm or disengage our car horns. In, this, in the same way we're told in Colossians 2, in a, actually a much more powerful way, we're told that in having disarmed the powers and authorities, Jesus made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross, Colossians 2.15. This word disarmed means to defeat or to strip, or to render ineffective. For those in Christ, those believers, uh, we, we enjoy the privileges of what Christ did on the cross by disarming Satan and all the authorities of the dark world. How did Jesus disarm Satan and the demonic forces? How did he do so? Well, it, it appeared as though Jesus was the one on the cross being defeated, being stripped, being rendered ineffective. And I'm sure Satan was giddy as he watched Jesus suffer on the cross as all of hell's forces were unleashed against Jesus' body and spirit. But we know that the exact opposite is true. And how do we know that? Well, from God's word. And we need to go back to the beginning to understand the full picture. When God created Adam and Eve... He created them to co-reign together over the earth. He gave them his power and authority and purpose. They had a perfect unbroken relationship with their creator as they walked and talked with him in the garden. But as we know, Adam and Eve fumbled the ball of their authority when they disobeyed God's command to not eat of the tree. And they believed the deceiver, the father of lies, the enemy of God, who claimed that they could be like God by knowing good from evil. And the serpent persuaded the first humans that they could determine their own moral truth and thus be in charge of their own lives and know right from wrong. You could be like God. And they thought, that sounds good. And in so doing, though, they relinquished their authority that God had given to them to reign over the earth. They handed it over to Satan, who then began to rule as the prince of this world, the god of this age, the prince of the power of the air. And Adam and Eve, along with all of their offspring, including us, became enslaved to Satan and his power. After they fumbled, God set into his plan immediately. He would choose a people a nation, Israel, who would one day give birth to a savior, a redeemer, a second Adam. Because it was a man, or the first Adam, who handed over the authority to Satan to begin with, it would require another man, a second Adam, to regain this authority. Therefore, it had to be a human, fully man. 
The second Adam would have to remain sinless and perfect throughout his lifetime to be qualified to redeem a sinful humanity. Otherwise, if he had sinned just one time, he would have been disqualified and he would have been in the same boat that we are, enslaved to Satan. And this man would not only have to be fully man, but he would have to be fully God in order to not inherit the sinful nature of his forebears, Adam and Eve, like we have. So he had to be born of a virgin and the Holy Spirit. So this Jesus Christ was born fully human and fully man. And so he'd be qualified without sin to die for our sins. From the very beginning of Jesus' life, Satan tried to thwart God's plan for us to reign on this earth and his plan to redeem the earth, the fallen earth. How? Either by killing Jesus prematurely or by tempting him to act independent of God, thereby um, just tempting him for one sin, one sin only, and he would have been disqualified. And so we know from the beginning of Jesus' life, King Herod, prompted by the uh, evil spirit, sought to kill this baby Jesus, along with the other innocents in the area. And then Satan, at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, would tempt Jesus while he was in the wilderness preparing for his earthly ministry. He would seek to tempt Jesus three times to act independent of God. Yet, Jesus, just turn that stone into bread. You can do it because you have the power and then you won't be hungry. Or, or Jesus, oh, look at all these kingdoms. They can be yours if you'd only bow down and worship me. I'll make you king, he promised. One day then, um, during the ministry of Jesus, the crowds sought to push Jesus off the side of a cliff, but this was not his time, and so he escaped that. Satan may have used a deadly storm in the middle of the Sea of Galilee when Jesus was asleep in the boat and his disciples were fearing that they were going to die. Satan might have been trying to destroy him then. The crowds often attempted to make Jesus king by force, bypassing the cross. You don't need to suffer. Jesus will make you king right now. Peter, even Peter, his close apostle, rebuked Jesus when Jesus spoke of his upcoming death. When he, and, and he said, Jesus, never, never, Jesus, this shall never happen to you. To which Jesus responded, get behind me, Satan. You're a stumbling block to me. Even when Jesus was hanging on the cross, the religious leaders taunted him and thereby tempting him to call upon the legion of angels to get himself off the cross. Mark 15, let this Messiah, this King of Israel, come down from that cross. Then we will see and believe. Even one of the criminals who hung beside Jesus hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Then save yourself and save us too. Satan would not stop for anything to get Jesus to act independent from God his Father, thereby disqualifying himself from being our Redeemer. But Jesus never did act independent. He completed what he set out to do when he cried, it is finished, paid in full. Uh, Paul Bilheimer writes, under universal ju uh, justice, when a man commits murder, he becomes subject to the death penalty. A convicted murderer forfeits his or her own life. 
thereby destroying him or herself. Satan, when he had accepted this authority, he murdered millions legally prior to Jesus, as all were guilty of sin. But his desperate effort, in his desperate effort to break Jesus' oneness with his father, he slew an innocent man upon which he had no legal claim. This is how Jesus rendered Satan powerless. Satan dug his own hole. He was his own demise without him knowing it. Hebrews 2 says, Jesus shared in our humanity that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. So Jesus discerned the powers and authorities of Satan and his evil troops. Now the only weapon that Satan has against us if we're believers in Christ, would be the power of his tongue, the power of the lie, the power of deception. If he could only get us to believe that we're nothing in Christ or that Jesus isn't close to us or that we messed up too greatly for him to redeem us or whatever, then we will walk in defeat. That's all he can do. But he cannot touch us because he can't touch Jesus. And Jesus lives within us. So Jesus discerned Satan in many ways. Let's look at a few of these ways, specifically. Jesus discerned Satan by providing access to God and to his resources. He put us back in touch with God, our creator, our heavenly father. Colossians 2.9, for in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. He is the head over every power and authority. So Jesus is the fullness and some total of all that God is. He is God the Son. If you want to know what the eternal, immortal, and invisible, all-powerful God is like, just look at Jesus. But smack dab in the middle of chapter, verse 9 and 10 is, and in Christ you have been brought to fullness. In Christ Through our union with Christ, every believer has full access to God and all of his resources. Like when I grew up in my household, I lived in my my family home. In my home, I had access to all that my parents had. I was not a hired servant, but a full member of the family. I was in the family. My dad, Guido, and my, no. I had access to my family's house. I had access to the family freezer. I could open it up and get me out a dish of ice cream every day after school without even permission. I had access to the TV remote unless dad was home. I had access to the furniture. I could lay on the couch if I wanted to. I had access to the thermostat. If I was too hot, I could turn it down. If I had, I had access to tools and the lawnmower and the yard and, and the family finances when I needed finances. I had access to the family vehicles when I was, you know, had a license. Um, I had access to the family annual vacation where I could hop in the back of the station wagon and go up to the Adirondack Mountains and enjoy just ride along because I belonged to the family. I was in the family. Well, guess what? We are in Christ. When we're in Christ, we have access 
to everything that we need. The best thing is the love of my family. I had access to the protection of my parents growing up. I had access to the security and acceptance. In the same way, we have access. This is not a penny. Two weeks ago, you saw a penny. Now you see a 50-cent piece. This is a bigger and better illustration. Again, just as a reminder, Colossians 3 tells us that we, are, we, are, we have died and we are with Christ in God. No, in Christ with God. We are covered in Christ with God. So I'm going to cover this, all right? Now watch. Boom, it's gone. Ha-ha. Where is it? I got another 50-cent piece right here in my pocket. <laughs> Same one. All right. Anyway, we are covered. We're covered. Oh, that's right here. We're covered in Christ with God, um, which means we have relationship to him. We have intimacy with God and with Jesus. We have his righteousness covering us. We have his protection, his security. All of his resources are right there because we are in Christ who is in God. And so that is the promise that he has for us. Satan, the liar, would want us to forget these things. And then we walk in defeat and fear and insecurity. Ephesians 1 tells us, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Every blessing in Christ. We're covered. So Jesus disarmed us, and he disarmed Satan and has provided every resource we need in Christ. Secondly, Jesus discerned Satan and the power he had over our sinful nature that controlled us. In verse 11, in him, in Christ, you are also circumcised with a circumcision not performed by human hands. Your whole self ruled by the flesh was put off when you were circumcised by Christ. Now, this circumcision is not the human hand kind. It's the circumcision of the heart, spiritual circumcision, the cutting away of our old self ruled by the flesh, our sinful nature ruled by Satan. Jesus took all of our sin upon his body when he hung on the cross. And when he died, his sin, our sin on his body died with him, thus paying the penalty for all of our sin in full. Steve Brown tells about a doctor who is in a mining town with several patients who were unable to pay their bills one year. And so the doctor took his book, and beside the patient's name, he just wrote, canceled. Canceled. Debt is canceled. Years later, after this physician died, his wife got a hold of this book, looked in it, and realized that many people had not paid their debts, their bills. And so... She demanded payment. They couldn't pay. She took them to court. The judge ruled, if your husband said that the debt was canceled, then the debts are canceled and can never be claimed again. That's what happened on the cross. Verse 13, we're told, he forgave all of our sin. John Corson, in his application commentary, writes, the hold that a demon has on someone is his sin. But if the sin has been forgiven by the blood of the Son, the demon has nothing upon which to cling. 
Once forgiveness is understood and the blood is appropriated, then the powers of darkness are rendered powerless, just as a troop of chained and conquered soldiers. We're dead to sin, and that's good news, but sin is not dead to us. Sin is still all around us. Just turn on the evening news. Sin is there to tempt us and discourage us. But we are dead to sin. Our sin was buried along with Jesus. We're dead to sin, which means our relationship with sin has ended. We're no longer under any obligation to obey and respond to sin or to Satan's temptations. Titus 2 tells us, For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. Before Christ, we had to obey our sinful nature, and we did so without us even knowing it. We believed the lies of our sinful nature and the passions, and that's what we followed. Once we met Christ... Now we have a choice. We can obey our, sinful na- our former sinful nature, or we could obey our new nature. In Christ, we're given the resources and the power and the wisdom to know how to obey. It teaches us to say no to this ungodliness and sin. Yep, I hear you. So, <laughs> so Jesus uh, gave, uh, disarmed the sinful nature as he hung on the cross. Thirdly, Jesus discerned the power of death over us. He eliminated this death. We need not experience death, speaking spiritually and eternally. Colossians 2.12, having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through your faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead, When you were dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. Notice, in those two short verses, we we see raised, raised, and made alive. Jesus uses this comparison of physical baptism when he speaks of what happened to us spiritually. We were buried. In other words, we died to our sin and our sinful nature, but then we're raised up. After being cleansed, we're raised up to new life in Christ as a child of God. We've been given a new attitude, new passions, new priorities, new ambitions, a new nature. Ellen White says, Jesus suffered the death which was not ours that we might receive the life which was his. The life that we live now is the life of Christ living in and through us. Or someone else put it this way, Jesus lived a life we could not live and died a death that we should have died to give us a life that we could not earn. We've got a new nature. Our new nature is we are alive eternally. The moment we meet Christ, we are born again and we will live forever. When we die physically, we're immediately alive, our spirit. Our spirit goes from life to life. And that's the good news. We need not fear death because Jesus conquered that death. And then finally, Jesus disarmed Satan. Uh, He disarmed the fear of this condemnation over us. Verse 14, 
Paul writes, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, the certificate of debt, which stood against us and condemned us, he has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. This certificate of debt that condemned us, Jesus took away. What does that mean? Adrian Rogers puts it this way in one of his books. He says, it was customary in Roman judicial system that when a man was found guilty and condemned for a crime, he was put in prison and he was given a certificate which was nailed upon the door of his prison uh, door. It was called a certificate of debt. On that certificate of debt would be written the crime for which this man was guilty and the number of days, months, and years that he'd have to stay in prison. Then, when he had fulfilled his duty to the law, served his time, if you will, the certificate of debt was marked paid in full. It was taken, given to the judge, who would have notarized it, and the freed man would carry it out with him. If anyone were to accuse this, this former criminal of this crime again, he could pull out a certificate of debt, and he could say, yes, I may have been guilty, but I have paid in full for that crime. It's stamped, it is paid, it is complete. But what happens if a man is guilty of capital offense? In Rome, this is what happened, they would be crucified. Uh, they would take this offense that he'd done and they'd nail it above his head as he or she hung on the cross. That's the reason that Pilate nailed over Jesus' head, Jesus Christ, the King of the Jews. It was sarcasm. Here was a man who claimed to be a king, an offense of insurrection against Caesar, which also was a crime worthy of death. And they crucified criminals um, openly in public so that when people walked by uh, they saw the person die in agony and they said nah and they, they saw, they saw the, the crime that was posted above this person's head and they said I'm not going to do that there's no way I'm not going to end up like that person now from God's point of view there was something else that was nailed to the cross and it was God's holy law. If we had been on the cross, God could have nailed any number of sins over our head. What would ours have read? Would it have read idolater? Which means I put things in front of God in my life as a higher priority. It could have read liar if we've ever embellished the truth. It could have read rebel if we've ever dishonored our mother or father. It could read a false witness if we've ever been dishonest with someone. It could read thief if we've ever taken something that belongs to someone else. It could have read um, adulterer if we have entertained lust in our hearts. It could read murderer if we've ever had hate or unforgiveness or bitterness in our heart. It could read blasphemer if we've ever used God's name in vain. In other words, if we're on the cross paying for our own sins, the Ten Commandments would have been nailed on above our heads because we've broken all of them over and over and over again. But when Jesus went to the cross, he bore all of the consequences for all of the broken commandments that we have committed and thereby releasing us from the condemnation that we deserve, spiritually speaking, 
of spiritual and eternal death and separation from God. Romans 13 tells us, therefore, there is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. Saint no longer has any legal claim over God's children. If you know Jesus, you'll never be condemned. It's all been paid for on the cross. Colossians 2.15, I end with this. And having disarmed the powers and the authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. You know, Satan and all of his evil servants were like an athletic team, boastful, arrogant, just strutting around, um, yelling to the cameras and to the crowds, we're going to crush, kill, and destroy our opponent. We're going to annihilate him. But when the game comes to an end, these arrogant athletes have to hang their head because they were the ones who were destroyed and humiliated. When Satan put Jesus on the cross, he was boasting in his arrogance that he's going to crush, kill, and destroy the Son of God. When he exposed Jesus to public humiliation before people, when when he inspired people to scoff at them, when he unleashed his diabolical fury from hell on Jesus' body and soul. But when all was said and done, it was Satan who hung his head in defeat. And he was defeated and made a public spectacle before the world. He had the big L on his forehead. Jesus disarmed, defeated, stripped, plundered, pillaged and rendered Satan ineffective over the children of God forevermore, triumphing over him even while he was on the cross. Had Satan known, he would have never hung Jesus on the cross. 1 Corinthians 2.8, none of the rulers of this age understood it, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. And indeed, we know that no one forced Jesus on the cross Jesus willingly went to the cross because he longed to redeem us, his fallen children. Now, if Satan has in fact been defeated, then why does he seem so powerful today? In fact, why does he seem so powerful over our lives? Why do we struggle so much with sin and with temptation and with living consistently for God if the devil is a defeated foe? And I guess the last question is, how do we overcome this defeated foe with the authority that we've been given? Well, that's for next week as we launch into chapter 3. I could preach it today, but we'd be here for another 20 minutes, so I won't. Let's pray. So, Lord Jesus, we thank you that you're here today and that uh, your children are here to worship you, to lift your name on high, uh, to uh, acknowledge our dependence on you, Lord, and our love for you. I know that you are pleased with your children who have taken this moment out of their week to come and worship you and make you number one in their lives. So thank you, Lord, for that. Be honored, Lord, with our praises and with our gifts of offerings of of gratitude. And I pray, God, that um, you also continue to teach us what it looks like to walk in you 
in your victory, Lord. Thank you for your uh, book of Colossians, Lord, that you've inspired and given to us. And I pray you continue to teach us through it. In Christ's name, amen.